Several years ago, my family went on a sort of once-in-a-lifetime trip out west. We had planned it for months. We went to the Badlands and Black Hills, Mount Rushmore, Yellowstone, and um, also to the Grand Tetons. And as a part of that experience, we went on a number of different hikes. One of our favorites was a hike to something called Harney Peak in the uh, Mount Rushmore area, which was the, the tallest point between the Rocky Mountains and the Eastern Seaboard. We did this hike and experienced everything from uh, sleet and rain to beautiful sunshine, but we made it. And Savannah was kind of little at the time and uh, it was a fun experience for us as a family. But the best hike we went on was one that was in the Grand Tetons. And some friends of ours told us that if you follow this particular trail, you'll come to a really large rock formation. It takes you about a half a day to get there. And from about 30 or 40 feet on this rock formation, you can jump into this beautiful, pristine, but cold lake. And so at the time, our, um, our boys were uh, in their teenage years. And I mean, what could be better for boys than a hike that results in a cliff jumping experience into freezing cold water? So we, we went after that one. And so we made it all the way to that uh, spot. And sure enough, we climbed up onto the rock formation. And they just took off, boom, into the water. And I remember like standing on the edge going, I gotta do this, my man card's on the line here, I gotta do this, I gotta do this. And so eventually I, I jumped in and it was, it was cold and it was just a little scary, but it was, so I did it again. Well then it was time for mom to go. Now my wife is incredibly adventuresome, but there's a couple things she does not like. Number one, heights. Number two, really cold water. I mean for her, the pool's gotta be about 85 degrees. That's just about the moment you're putting your toe in. So I'll never forget, she's at the top of this rock formation and she's kind of rocking back and forth and she's asking all kinds of questions like, how cold was it? Did it hurt when you fell in? Uh, and when I was at the bottom waiting for it, she said, if I, if I get in and I get in trouble, you gonna come get me? And I was like, babe, come on, you can do it, you can do it. And she kept going back and forth. The boys were telling her, come on, mom. And she's like, I got it, I got it, I got it. And she just couldn't do it. And then I said this. I said, honey, for the rest of your life, you're gonna remember what you do next. Hey, so for the rest of your life, you're gonna remember what happens next. We're gonna talk about this forever, and it's gonna be one of those moments, either it's gonna be, remember that time that mom couldn't, or the time that mom did. So just jump, baby, jump. And she was like, all right, and so she took off, and I'll never forget this image, her squeal, and her feet are like this, going all the way in. And she hit the water and she was like, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. I'm swimming out to get her and uh, it was just a great, great moment. But <laughs> standing at the top of that rock formation, the decision point in her mind was this, is this risk worth it? Now, don't get me wrong, not every risk is worth it. I've had way too many trips to the ER with my children over the years, right? My wife has famously said that she doesn't know how any boy lives to age 10. So lots of risky decisions that are bad decisions. But there are some risks that are 100% worth it. And I'm sure that you can look back on your life and see the way a particular risk, while not entirely safe, was absolutely the right decision. Took a job. I wasn't quite sure where it was gonna go. Decided, you know what? The minivan already feels full, but let's have another child. Or, you know what? Let's go to church for the first time in a long time. Or, 
you know what, we need to talk to somebody about some of the problems in our marriage. Let's find somebody we can talk to. So there are particular risks that are incredibly right. And this morning in John chapter four, we see that Jesus takes the risk of talking to a Samaritan woman. It's interesting that John places this text where he does. There's so many layers and stories here that uh, we could dial into, so many aspects of this story, rather. In fact, I thought we could probably spend four weeks trying to unpack these verses. So what I'm gonna try and do is walk through these 42 verses. I'm just gonna walk you through the story, providing a little bit of a structure, and then I'm gonna make some applications at the end. So we're gonna walk through all these verses, and the singular thing that I want you to see is this, that gospel risk is right. And let me tell you why this is particularly important where we are right now. Because this week, as Eric said, this is our week. This is the church's week. This is the week when people will actually think about coming to church. And I want you leaving today with this thought of what risk, for the sake of the gospel, does God want me to take this week? Who do I need to invite? Who do I need to say, hey, why don't you come with us? Who's in your world? That's a little risky. So let's see what John helps us to understand about the life and and ministry of Jesus. In John chapter four, we see that Jesus reaches out to this Samaritan woman. Let's set the framework or the setting first. John chapter four, verse one. Now when Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, it seems as though there's some kind of pressure that's happening from the Pharisees, or that Jesus is a little concerned that his ministry and John the Baptist's ministry need a little bit of space between them because they're both valuable, and although John was correct that Jesus needed to increase and he needed to decrease, and maybe that Jesus felt like, let's, let's move and let John do his ministry, we're gonna move ours over here. Or it may be that John intends to communicate a progression that we'll hear at the end of Jesus' life of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. So John is a, a marvelous crafter of story in the context of his gospel. We don't know all of the reasons why he sets it up this way nor do we know what it means when it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Some people think that it means that instead of going all the way around, that apparently some Jews did, they went around Samaria because of their disdain for them, that instead he decided to go right straight through Samaria. Although, honestly, there's other church historians, one in the first century named Josephus, who argued that uh, that route through Samaria was actually the more preferred because it was more direct. So there's, there's a lot that we don't know, but here's what we do know. We do know that when Jesus goes through the area of Samaria, it was a problem. And the reason is, is because while the Jews may have preferred a faster travel route, what's clear is they did not prefer the people of Samaria. So there's some history here, some ethnic prejudice that's here. And it's always the case, whether it's in that day or our own, there's a history, there's a reason how this happened. Let me tell you what happened. The Samaritans were a mixed ethnicity. They were partly Jewish and partly foreign. And by foreign, I mean Assyrian 
because the Assyrians came in in 722 BC and they conquered the northern tribes. And when they did so, they took the upper echelon of the Jewish people and they deported them. They they took away the power structures, the intellectual um, leaders, and they spread them all over the, the, the known world. And then they repopulated Israel with people from other nations. That's what I mean by foreign. There was a multicultural uh, group of people. And as a result, the sort of lower income scaled people in Israel were remaining there and they intermarried with the foreign people from the country of Assyria. When the Jewish people then returned to resettle Jerusalem and the surrounding area, they found the land populated with these people who were half Jewish and half other. And as well, they created sort of their own culture. They had worship practices that they mingled forms of Judaism and paganism, and Samaria developed its own identity. In fact, in 400 BC, they constructed a rival temple at Mount Gerizim. And if you know anything about Jewish pride in their temple, to construct an alternative temple, that, that was a big deal. They even refused to accept particular books of the Bible other than the Pentateuch. And sometimes the conflict between Jews and the Samaritans got so hot that violence took place. In fact, there was a time in the 200s, 200 BC, when a... Um, a temple, the temple at Mount Gerizim was destroyed by a, Jew, a Jewish leader in Judea. So there was tension between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. And central to this tension was the cultural belief that Samaritans were inferior to the Jews. Now that's really important because that hangs in the backdrop when we come to this text. But you, you can't smell the animosity. You can't feel the tension of the Jews toward the Samaritans just by reading this text. But you need to know that is central to why this story is important. So in verse five, Jesus comes to a town of Samaria called Sychar. It says, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So apparently it was a fairly well-known well. There weren't that many wells they were hard, they're expensive to, uh, to construct, and so when you've got a good well, it's pretty well known. And notice in verse six, it says, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Now, this is interesting. This is the first time that Jesus' humanity in terms of his weakness is displayed. Previously, in John chapter one, we heard about that Jesus has come in the flesh, but in that context, Jesus comes in the flesh and the disciples in his flesh see the glory of God. So they know he's a man, but they see something special about him in terms of his deity. This is the first time that we see Jesus expressing his full humanity. Just think of this. This is the son of God and he's wearied from his journey. Just makes you wonder how what the angels thought of that. Here's the son of God, and he's tired. It just shows you how and to what extent Jesus went in order to redeem us. So here's Jesus, he's sitting at this well, and it says it was about the sixth hour. Sixth hour is about noon. This is important because this would be about the hottest time of the day. 
And the reason that you need to know that is that people like in our own day, they, they do the work when it makes the most sense. So they don't work harder, they work smarter. That's what people do. And so if you're gonna get water, you're gonna go not when it's hot, you're gonna go in the cooler parts of the day. So typically, people went to the well in the morning or in the evening when the sun wasn't at its hottest. That's important because verse seven says that a woman from Samaria came to drink water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now this woman comes by herself I mean, that, that's, that's a statement. She comes by herself to draw water. You don't feel what a first century person would have felt when they read this. You might feel it if I put it this way. She came from the wrong side of the tracks. Or he was known for trolling the red light district. Or he was sitting on a park bench with a bottle in a bag. So all of those things have suddenly now layered meaning in a single sentence. You get a background without really even having to know all the background, and a woman coming to the well at noon says something. The reason is, is because people are people, whether it's in 2019 or in uh, the first century, and women in particular would travel in groups, both for protection and for socialization. I mean, it's nothing different than you out to eat with a, some friends and you know, one woman gets up to use the bathroom, they're all gonna go together, right? It's just, it's just how, how it rolls, right? Or uh, you have this, uh, this meal that you're having together and you're gonna go do something and you kind of divide up into different groups. And if you go to the um, different parts of the world, you'll see that when water is being gathered, it's not just about hydration, it's also about socialization and it's about community. So when this woman comes to the well, she's not just coming to the source of water, she's coming to the meeting place of the community. I think of it like the water cooler at work. People hang out, talk. Well, John's making a statement here. She's coming at the time when it would be least likely that there would be people there. And there's a reason. The conversation that happens next between Jesus and this woman is risky. He says to her, give me a drink. Then John adds, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So he's by himself, he asks this woman to give her a drink, likely because he doesn't have anything with which to draw water. The woman is shocked that he would speak to her, let alone ask, that he could use her utensils. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? So it's not just that there's some sort of cultural awkward pause in this moment. Not like she just kind of tilts her head and looks at him like, well, this is a little different. She actually makes the statement that calls the question, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? The reason that this is such a stunning moment is what John says next, parenthetically, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You see what he's doing here? John wants people who don't know the culture to know what's going on, which is why he keeps adding these parenthetical thoughts. He doesn't want to assume that you know what it means, that what Jesus is doing here. And when he says they have no dealings with the Samaritans, it doesn't just mean that they don't have social engagements with them. It means even more than that. It means that 
the strictest religious Jews wouldn't drink water from the same pitcher that a Samaritan used. So what Jesus is doing here is he is engaging this woman at a level that is culturally, I don't wanna say questionable. No, I guess culturally questionable would be okay to say. Because when the disciples come back, they are curious as to why Jesus is talking to this woman. What Jesus is doing is he's, he's crossing typical social and cultural barriers. He then engages her in conversation. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What Jesus does in this moment is he, he puts something out there that would be of interest to her. He starts with something relatable. He starts with something relevant to a person's life. Seems as though he's, he's pulling her into a dialogue while starting with something that would be attractive to her. You know, one of the challenges of um, both evangelism and living in the world in which we live is realizing that we need to take the gospel and help explain it in a way that not just makes sense to people, but also maybe helps them understand that it meets a felt need in their life. And there's a whole philosophy of church ministry called attractional church, where everything about the church is kind of seen through that lens. So you dumb everything down, talk only about felt needs, so you can always speak to people who are not yet Christians, and, and that model has some really, really big challenges to it. But on the other hand, some churches go way to the other end of, of, of the spectrum, and they sort of talk about the gospel as if unchurched people don't matter, or as if those felt needs aren't really important to think through. And what Jesus does here is he has this beautiful balance of, of, of both. He's, he's gonna reach out to her and help her to be attracted to what he has to offer her at the same time. He's not gonna compromise on the centrality of the message. He talks to her about living water. I wish we had time to go back in the Old Testament. If you wanna write down a passage, Ezekiel 47 is a great text just that, that pictures what happens when spiritual renewal takes place, and the idea is this image of a, of a little stream that comes out of the temple that turns into this massive river, and the idea is that living water has a, a, a connotation of spiritual life, and it sort of sweeps everyone into its stream, and the idea is that there's something deep within her that she doesn't even know yet that she needs and is looking for. Well, the woman is intrigued. She says, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? So right now, Jesus is talking over here and she's talking over here. In a moment, they're gonna come together. But right now, this conversation, they're not on the same page. He clarifies about living water. She says one more thing here. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Now, when she says Father Jacob, she just laid a historical, excuse me, a historical 
uh, marker down where there was a disagreement between the Jews about whether or not Jacob was both of their fathers. And Jesus just kind of let that, lets that one go, doesn't even pick that up. And that's one of the things that when you begin to talk to people about how they think spiritually, you have to decide which thing you address and which thing you don't. She doesn't see the full extent of her need. Jesus then says to her, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So he's starting to talk to her like there's something that I can give you that will satisfy the ultimate thirst of your soul. And in John chapter seven, in verses 38 and 39, Jesus further clarifies what he means by this, that it is the Holy Spirit spirit that comes and gives life on the inside of a person's soul, providing the ultimate satisfaction. He's indirectly telling this woman, you don't even know what you're missing. You don't even know how beautiful your life could be. She's so thirsty, she doesn't even know what thirst is. Text continues. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So again, Jesus is talking here, she's here. She doesn't quite see the connection yet. In fact, what she sees is that this living water would help her to not have to get water all the time. So she's looking at this through a bit of a consumer lens. Jesus changes the conversation, verse 16. It's gonna get like for realsy in a minute here. <laughs> Put that in your Bible, for realsy, okay? Verse 16, Jesus said to her, here's how I think he said it. I think he said, go call your husband. I think that's how he said it. It would be like saying, why don't you go get your family and let's talk about this. I don't think he said, go call your husband. I don't, I, I don't, think, that's, I don't think that's what happened because the woman answers him truthfully. And she, she isn't defensive. She says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, now notice the tenderness of Jesus. Notice his, his beautiful balance. Jesus is gonna be kind and clear. He's gonna be compassionate and convictional. He's gonna be truthful, but he's gonna be gracious. I just want you to know that true Christian maturity looks like understanding what's important and in what order it needs to go. Or think of it this way, that Christianity involves a lot of both. And both isn't easy. Like you gotta think through, in this conversation with my friend over lunch, should I be candid or should I just be compassionate? Do I wait or do I go for it? Do I, do I jump in or do I wait for another time? And I, I would love to be able to give you a playbook to say here's exactly what you do every single time, but then you wouldn't need the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't pray as much, and in fact, Christian maturity is wrestling with those realities. Jesus says, go call your husband. She says, I have no husband. He says, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Could you imagine the look on her face in this moment? I mean, what she says next is, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Now, five husbands. Hmm. Couple possibilities. On the one hand, let's just think, I mean, either, either way, it's bad. So let's just say she had five husbands that died. 
She's like the black widow of Samaria, right, of Sychar. Like, we don't know what happens, but she gets married and these guys die. And so she's got a reputation in that way. More likely is she's been divorced five times. And there was a pretty rampant divorce culture in Jesus' day. It may have been that she was immoral and therefore was divorced. It may have been that she kept marrying the wrong men and they kept finding something that they didn't like about her and sending her away, kind of being abusive and using the, the covering of the Old Testament law to hide their, their, their covetousness or maybe their own immorality. Whatever it is, this woman has a cloud over her. And some of it may be because of her, some of it may not because of her, we don't know exactly, but there is a cloud that exists over her and Jesus gets to this critical point. He speaks into the moral fabric of her life. Can I just remind you that when you talk to people about what it means to be a Christian, eventually you have to get to the moral fabric. If you're here today, you're not yet a Christian, I want you to know that the thing that you may not fully understand is that Jesus can fulfill the thing that you keep going to over and over and over, that, that want that you have that shows up in all sorts of ways and it shows up particularly in how you handle your morals. So you lie, you lust, you, you, you commit adultery or just whatever it is that you go to to try and satisfy, you wake up the next morning and you're like, snap, it's not it. And you keep looking and looking and looking and looking. And what Jesus is doing to this woman is helping her to see that underneath this deep thirst is something that he could satisfy. Now what she does is what happens so common, happens so, um, so often, it's so common. She says to him, not only I perceive that you are a prophet, but she tries to engage him in a spiritualized discussion that's sort of a rabbit trail. She's like, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem, um, is the place where people ought to worship. So this is like the person that you're talking to them about the gospel and suddenly, suddenly like, yeah, my grandma, she was Catholic. Or yeah, I used to go to church, it's full of hypocrites. Or what about apocrypha? Like there's books of the Bible that you don't even believe. And suddenly now we're off in a rabbit trail discussions. And, and the key is that Jesus brings her back to center. He says, woman, believe me, verse 21, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So Jesus just kind of lays it out there and the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And look at this. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Wow. Like you go in the rest of John's gospel, he hardly ever says that. He's cagey with the Pharisees. He doesn't lay it down like that. But with this woman, he lays it down very specifically. He wants her to know who he is. And can I just remind you that whenever you talk about the gospel, eventually you have to get to Jesus. A good gospel presentation without showing people Jesus is not a gospel presentation. God has a wonderful plan for your life. That's true, but it's because of Jesus. And the reason that the Resurrection Sunday is so important is because that Jesus is alive and his resurrection from the grave demonstrates that he has the power to satisfy the thing in your soul that you can't get to. 
Just then, the disciples come back. <laughs> oh, the poor disciples. You know what's interesting? John was a disciple. John was probably in that group. And one of the things I love about the Bible is the candor with which the gospel writers deal with their own shortcomings. So here comes the disciples. And they marveled that he was talking with a woman. So they show up, and they sense the social awkwardness of the moment. But no one said to the woman, what do you seek? What are you after? Nor did they say to him, why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar. John may put this in just for not only accuracy, but also symbolism. She came there with water, for a water, with her water jar, for water. She leaves without that water jar because now something bigger has entered into the equation. She went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. How about that? I mean, this woman was known for what she's done. And she's like, come see a man who told me everything I did. Imagine people in Sychar were like, mm-hmm. <laughs> but then she says, can this be the Christ? So they went out of the town and were coming to him. So the scene is that these, these people are coming out of the city of Sychar. Meanwhile, back in verse 31, the disciples have no idea about this conversation. They don't know about the people who are coming. They're concerned about lunch. <laughs> They're saying, Rabbi, eat. And that's what Jesus sent him into the city to get food, and they found the food. They brought him food. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know. So the disciples said to them, to one another, has someone else brought him something to eat? I mean, so, it's just so funny. Here they are. The disciples, all they can think about is lunch, lunch, lunch. And Jesus is, has, he's seeing these people who are coming and the disciples head down. All they can see is, you asked us to get food. We got you food. Come on, let's eat. Isn't that just like how you lived your life last week? I got to go to the store and get groceries. Don't talk to me. Don't. Keep my head down, I'm just here to get my food, get my eggs, get my milk, get my pizza, my chips and salsa, that's my list. And then I don't wanna to talk to anybody, just get in, get my card, and get in my car. I don't, I'm here to do my job at work, just do the thing. You, you, you are not in the world to do your job alone. You don't exist to get your grocery list completed. Here's these disciples. He says in verse 35, do, not say there are, do you not say there are yet four months and then the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields. They're white for harvest. I think Jesus sees these people coming and he says it's, it's, it's ripe unto harvest. I'm gonna skip to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. When she said, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, look at this, it is no longer because of what you said do we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. Wow. This is the first massive movement of gospel advance that John records. We go from him talking to a, a, a scribe, Nicodemus, at night, intellectual conversation, now to this woman who's an outcast in the society, and a city is evangelized significantly in this moment. John wants you to see that when he says, God so loved the world, he meant it. So let me give you a few takeaways from this story. First, 
Who do you relate to in the story? Do you relate to the woman? Cloud of sort of shame hanging over you? Friend, I want you to know if you're here today and that's you, we all have that. And the beautiful story of the gospel is that Jesus rescues us from the not only shame of our past, but all the stuff that created the shame. And when this woman encounters Jesus, he transforms her life because she understands that he's able to satisfy her so deep that she can't even get to it with this living water idea. Some of us may relate to the disciples. Just think yesterday what your day was like all the good things that we're able to be involved in in the course of our daily or weekly activities. The problem is that those things can be so, become so all-consuming that we forget that this is not why I'm on earth. I don't exist just to be able to fulfill a grocery list or do my job at, at work or be able to answer emails in an efficient fashion. I don't exist for all of these reasons. All of those things are not bad in and of themselves unless they become the singular thing why we exist on the earth. And this next week, you'll have an opportunity to break through that and to realize you've got about six days until Easter comes, and the question is, what will you do with that opportunity? Maybe you look at the text, and it's a little awkward to say, but you're like, I'm, I'm kind of like Jesus in this passage, right? Maybe, praise God, you are. You, you're, you're taking risks. You're, you're engaging in conversations with people. You're trying to engage in the hearts and lives of people who are struggling. You know, the great thing is, is that God has grace for us no matter where we are in the storyline. Secondly, it's so important, I mentioned this before, but I just wanna hit it again. It's so important to see the way that Jesus balances this conversation with both, on the one hand, relatability and relevance, and on the other hand, compassion and truth and clarity. So I want to remind you that mature Christianity is grace and truth, compassion and clarity, love and conviction. The key is trying to maintain the right balance. And finally, when it comes to the gospel, risk is right. And Jesus takes a big risk here in order to engage this woman. Let me put it this way. If we wait to engage people in conversation about the gospel until it's comfortable, it will rarely happen. Let's say that again, because that's the whole point of this passage. If you wait to engage people in conversation about the gospel until it's comfortable, un until your friends are all gonna be okay that you're having this conversation. Until people around you aren't gonna go, what's that about? If you wait until you're 100% guaranteed that that person's gonna say, thank you for telling me that I'm a sinner. <laughs> if you wait, it'll likely never happen. Nothing squelches the opportunity for gospel to, nothing squelches the gospel opportunity to advance like waiting until it's safe. Now listen, I know there's limits. I'm not telling you to be reckless. But I am saying, you get about six days until Easter comes. And I want you to pray through what kind of risk you might need to take this week. 
to be able to say to a friend, listen, I've been thinking about you. Would you mind, just, just, would you come with us on Easter? What's the worst thing that could happen? They could say no. Could be upset. Right. Actually, no wrong. The worst thing is they could stay in their unconverted condition. That's the worst thing. So let me ask you, who's in your world that other people tend to shun? Who's outside the norm of your social and cultural engagement that you might consider pursuing? When was the last time, here's a, here's a hard question, when was the last time that you or that people were a bit shocked when they learned about your connection to a particular kind of person? Some of you have somebody in your office or in your neighborhood or in your relationship sphere that other people view as unreachable and maybe even worse, untouchable. And my question is, why not take the risk? Why not? Because after all, remember that Jesus took a huge risk in redeeming us. The point of this text is that Jesus reached out to a woman, a Samaritan woman, and the question we need to ask ourselves, if that's what Jesus did, what risks should we be willing to take? The Samaritan woman is about this central message. When it comes to the gospel, risk is right. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to know what step, what risk, what conversation that we should have this week that would fit with the tone and the point of this passage. We, we ask for your grace to be in us and on us as we um, have conversations this week, as you put us into scenarios. And Lord, I just believe you're gonna provide providential opportunities for us to go there and Help us to do it with grace, but also with clarity. Lord, thank you that you are ordaining our steps and you've got people in this city that you love and we love who you want to become followers of you who need to have their thirsty hearts satisfied with the living water of Jesus. So make us good communicators of that truth this week, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.